Hello, my name is Tina Camellia and this is The Starting Block, a weekly conversation on science and society with an emphasis on disinformation data and democracy. Before we start, I'd like to let you know that the transcript and credits for this conversation are available on the sidelines, the supplement to every main edition of The Starting Block. Now, in the same lane as last week, filmmaker Nizar Ruzil, to pick up where we left off. Our hero's journey this week takes us to online moderation, asking for a cat's consent, and finding the big bad of the internet. Ready? Let's go. Can I ask you some questions now? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Go on. <laughs> um, how does doing this work affect you personally? Are you like completely paranoid about digital security all the time? When I started working on this, I had this very naive approach to it where I think that, you know, I've got nothing to hide. So spy on me if you want. It's a very bad approach to this. Snowden says that arguing that you don't care about privacy because you have nothing to hide is no different than saying you don't care about free speech because you have nothing to say. Wow. Right. So great quote. So I, I stopped having that perspective because... Mm. I feel like I do need to have a, an opinion about things. But because I didn't come into this field with skepticism, I came with like, I've got nothing to hide kind of approach. It didn't push me to the paranoid side. First, I took this approach of I want to learn everything. I've arrived at the point where I realized that I can't learn everything. I need to start forming opinions about things because things are moving a lot faster than the rate my opinions are forming. So. I'm at the stage where as much as I talk about new technologies and misinformation, right? I have to always remind myself that it's not that they're villains, you know, technology is a tool and we need to know how to use it because we're the ones who are the tool makers. I know it's a wishy-washy answer, but... No, no, I totally get it. I mean, I'm on all the platforms. I'm still on Facebook. I'm still on WhatsApp. I, I agree to the terms and conditions that I argue against. Because I need to be on the platform. Like you are cornered. Yeah, given totally. this illusion of choice. The thing is, you don't really have a choice. You can't exactly opt out of cookies on websites. Mm. Because if you opt out of it, you have no access to the website. So it's an illusion of choice. I'm mm. sure there's a way to, to work around all of this where you don't have to trade personal data and, and personal information for public information, for news, yeah. for education, you know? But we've gone so far past that anymore. You, do you ever think we can actually roll it back to a time before cookies? Like, it's not going to happen. <laughs> I mean, I, I constantly have this dilemma as well, right? Like, Facebook is the only social media I'm actively on like I have a Twitter thing but I hate Twitter it's so horrible and toxic and on on that front that's the only kind of positive I can give Facebook also because Facebook what I like about it is that it allows you to choose if each post if you want to make public or private right you don't have to choose your whole account has to be public or your whole account has to be private that's what I like about Facebook But other than that, I hate Facebook <laughs> as a company, as, you know, everything they stand for. I hate them. Yeah. But at the same time, I've built like, you know, 15 years of network on Facebook and giving that up is so hard. Mm. It cannot be a one person struggle because, yeah, you can leave Facebook and, you know, give a 
you know, middle finger to Zuckerberg with that mm. departure. But yeah, no one's going to notice your departure. So you need a, a mass action. Like everyone has to do it. The same way that when the first iteration of WhatsApp's uh, new terms and conditions, because the wording was so poorly done, everyone thought mm. that, you know, they're, they're giving away personal information to businesses, which to be fair, it's already being done, um, but it's being made more obvious with the terms and conditions that they're forcing WhatsApp users to. And a lot of people mm. made the switch to Signal and Telegram, right? Mm -hmm. So, so you need that kind of like massive, widespread information blasted, but I, and you need the alternative already waiting for people to make mm. that switch because if you don't have the alternative something has to fill that void and it's going to be malicious actors. But I do feel like a lot of the time, these kind of actions, oh, maybe it's just me, but it feels very reactionary, right? Mm. So people may make that behavioral change in that moment, but it doesn't last. Generally, people still use WhatsApp, even yeah. though they also use Telegram and Signal now, they're yeah. still using WhatsApp, right? <laughs> I don't know, in the long term, whether that really had any effect on Facebook. But we see the death of a lot of platforms like MySpace, Friendster. But those are slow, miserable deaths that they suffer. People made that switch from those platforms to Facebook. Yeah. But it that is... was also when social media was kind of figuring itself out, right? Correct. Yeah. The news feed was what was appealing about Facebook. And now it's, it's, it's the villainous part of Facebook. It also felt like safer. I don't know. It probably was not safer at all then. But I feel like we were all just more naive. <laughs> well, you know, when you think about the things I put on MySpace and Friendster or even the early days of Facebook when you go out one night and put like 200 photos on Facebook <laughs> the next day. Yeah. Like you would never do that now. That's insane. Why would I give Facebook these photos and information? Yeah. <laughs> but, but it's too late now. It's there. I already have it. It's there. Yeah. I think one thing definitely that, that really annoys me, I've kind of like gone over it a bit now because i remember when snapchat first started and they had like the whole you know it disappears in 24 hours thing mm. and there were a lot like of security concerns at the beginning of that right yeah and then i felt like people just got used to that behavior and then of course facebook introduced it to instagram insta story mm. everyone jumped on that and then all the security concerns went completely out the window and it became just completely normalized and it's like for me it's like so I mean firstly I just have like a lot of anxiety of social media and like people posting stuff without consent but also it's like it's also my job right like everyone I put on camera I have to have explicit consent for and kind of take responsibility for mm. what I saw was like insta stories is that people feel like they have a right to broadcast at any point at any time even in private spaces I mean if yeah. you're in public space then fine but in people's homes like you know I can have a bunch of friends over and then at the end of the day my cats will be on like five people's different Instagram accounts and not <laughs> one of them and not Ask one your of them your cat's consent <laughs> 
but not just my cat's consent, but like my consent, right? Like yeah. not one person thought, oh, this is someone's private home. I should mm. ask them for consent before I put their home up on my Instagram, mm. even if it's going to disappear in 24 hours or whatever. I think that Insta stories kind of completely obliterated that idea of consent in private spaces. Mm. And that annoys me. <laughs> like, yeah. That really annoys me. Yeah. yeah, because even if it disappears in 24 hours, you can always do a screen record. And yeah. there is an archive function to the stories, even if it's 24 hours to the public or to whoever is following my account. Mm-hmm. It's forever for my account. And if you have access to my account, yeah. you have access to everything. The 200 photos from 2009 still there <laughs> it's also forever for facebook right yeah like you cannot be so naive to think that they actually going to delete it after 24 hours like no, no way <laughs> <laughs> but we made those decisions a decade ago and we can't take it back yeah we can't it's completely normalized now yeah and everybody's probably just given up like you know my i've sold my soul so now i'm just going to yeah. continue doing it i've kind of given up because i'm always like the weird one you know who's like guys consent <laughs> and they're like oh, okay yeah you know or I it, it makes me feel like I'm like the weirdo the alien who's like don't mm. don't put up on your Insta story without consent <laughs> I was very apprehensive about stories as well for, for similar reasons right but I've because I have to be on these platforms I have two TikTok accounts because Why? I'm because TikTok is so algorithm driven that mm. I, I wanted to curate my feed based on certain personalities. So I have one that's me, another one, another phone that's like a made up persona and see the difference in, in the feed, um, in my recommendations. I mean, I can choose to not be on these platforms, but along the way, I learned about how to, to minimize the risk and mitigate some concerns like the certain rules that I have um, with anyone who, who lives with me it's like I don't want people to be able to identify where I live based mm-hmm. on our photos so my Instagram stories have images of beers that I drank but you wouldn't know where I drank it because it's just against a background of a tiled wall yeah. When you look at the feed, you probably just think that I'm just a beer drinker. I'm so glad you think like that too. And it's not just me. (laughs) No, it's not just you. Because I'm always like, it's not, it's not just the cat. It's the entire house behind the cat. There have been many times that I have to DM people saying that, please take down that comment or please take down that photo. I mean, images, that's one thing, but sometimes it's the comments. Sometimes I do everything I could to Mm. make it not obvious where I am or you know who I'm with or whatever and then someone would comment oh isn't that so and so I saw them there this evening so you can place this person at this place so easily through that comment it it might be an innocent comment uh, maybe acknowledging that we have a mutual acquaintance but you could be endangering them I think that's totally fair I wanted to ask you also like how different is radio or was radio to the kind of work you do now or like how I mean how does that because I feel like you guys did a lot of like talk back radio and Mm. 
it's a different kind of form of having a conversation as opposed to like social media. Mm. How how do you feel about that? Like, do you feel it's easier to con- control the information on radio or it's not really? Ooh, M- moderation is such a, such a tricky subject because mm. when you talk about moderating conversations, everyone's going to be up in arms about freedom of speech and so on, right? <laughs> but the thing about radio and other forms of traditional media is that you have gatekeepers. I'm not using that gatekeeping word in like a, you know, malicious kind of way. I mean, like you're screening these calls. Like I enjoyed being a producer more than I enjoyed being a presenter. And as a radio producer, it's my job. I'm the one that's screening the potential guests and speakers, doing the background checks, vetting their credentials. And when we put them on air and we have the phone lines open, I'm screening every call. I'm talking to them, chatting, like having a feel. And you need to have a nose for this kind of thing, especially when you don't have any other cues but an audio cue, right? To be able mm. to, to see, are they going to trick me? And once they go on air, they're going to say something else and, you know, curse the government. And we're the ones that's going to get, be fine, you know? <laughs> Not them. They're thinking we get away with it. We're the ones that's going to be fined $500,000 a ringgit or whatever it was that Malaysia <laughs> Kinney was... <laughs> fine for for a user comment right so with traditional media you have those roles you have the news editor that gives you the okay for whether a story goes to print with with broadcasting it's the same you have your editors and your producers that kind of the quality control the quality check around it but with social Mm. media there's no form of moderation i mean you have like Facebook groups and stuff like that where you have moderators, you have online forums that have moderators, but they're doing it voluntarily. They're doing it mm. when they're online and people are online at different times. So it's different kind of moderation. It's you, you cannot compare the two forms of moderation. So it's very difficult with social media because you want to also say that it is a, a free-for-all space, but is it really? It, it's mm. not. It's not because sometimes it's not about freedom of speech, but it is the monopoly to that freedom mm. of speech. So yeah. who who has freedom of speech? Right? Mm. Yeah, it's tricky moderating on social media because you can post anything and the moderation comes after, not before. Like mm-hmm. If you think about publication, let's say for newspaper versus for a post that you put up on Facebook, um, for print, you go through your editor, you go through rounds and rounds of vetting, proofreading, sub-editing before it goes to print, before it gets published. But if you publish anything on social media, it's the reverse. You put it out first and mm-hmm. then someone has to complain to the Facebook uh, complaint committee, whatever it is. And they will come back to you two weeks later saying, oh, we've reviewed this, there's nothing wrong with it. <laughs> you know so it's a different process but like in our context I mean the Malaysian context this Mm. is kind of inevitable also right because mainstream media is so controlled Mm. so government owned and restrictive people are generally just going to go online and say what they're going to say anyway right 
I mean, like Fami Riza, for example, right? Mm. He uses the social media space to do his activism and troll the government in a way that he could never do in mainstream media. <laughs> it's a double-edged sword, right? Mm. The social media has given us so much freedom in that sense. I mean, me, especially in, you know, in the work that I do, 95% of the time, it's not going to be content that I can ever put on mainstream TV or mainstream whatever, right? So the online space has been a godsend in that sense for not just me, but a lot of especially marginalized voices to yeah. put their content out there and say what they mm. want to say that in traditional spaces, they couldn't. But you see, maybe it's just because the Malaysian authorities aren't that chile IT, as they call it in Malaysia. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because <laughs> it is entirely possible to have your content censored. You can't possibly censor everything. But that's what's ha- what happened in India with a lot of the comments or tweets that were critical of the Indian government and the way they're handling the COVID pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, the tweets were taken, they, they were not taken down, but they're not viewable in India. And it gives you the illusion that your tweet was not censored. And because these businesses uh these platforms they're not so twitter is not an indian company but they have to comply to indian legislations because their business operates in that country and so you can do the same in malaysia they would have to comply otherwise they will not be able to do business in malaysia i mean i don't know how much our government does that i mean they have you know, the MCMC laws, the Communications Act laws, and the now fake news law again. I feel like they don't need to ask Google or Twitter or whatever to take something down. They can just arrest you and haul you to court. Correct. And force yeah. you to take it down. That, yeah. That's so far the approach. It's call you in, take all of your equipment and devices mm-hmm. and make you take it down. Mm-hmm. But like with um, Fami Reza's um, Spotify playlist, you see what happened, right? They could make a request to Spotify and Spotify has to comply and they complied really fast. Whereas they if did. we little people made a request about something, oh, you'd be lucky to hear back from them. That's true, yes. <laughs> so you can exercise that, you know, heavy-handed kind of approach if the government wants mm. to. Mm. If you ask me about paranoia, I'm not paranoid about technology because I think technology is a lot easier for us humans to band together against because technology is is a non-human entity. But when it comes to like human rights issues, when it's like marginalized communities and all that, that's the part that always, um, it feels a lot more out of my control. Especially if the tech is modeled on human behavior, right? Oh, yeah. (laughs) I remember there was that one, like, some kind of bot on Twitter that was speaking based on all the data on Twitter, right? And it just, the bot just became this horrible, racist, anti-Semitic, homophobic monster. Yeah. And it was like, yep, that sounds about right. (laughs) Yeah. And and it's easy to look at a bot and and say, like, there's something wrong with a bot. But you don't Mm. go beyond that. You just see the bot as the... What's the last boss? Final, the final boss? boss. Yes, that's what it is. <laughs> you, you know what I mean? But, but the final yeah. boss is not the bot itself. It's the right. people behind 
the bot and yeah. how did we get there i was watching this video on vox the other day on captures mm -hmm. and how captures have um, evolved and it's because the computers just got smarter and learned everything we were that was supposed to trick it that that was kind of scary <laughs> it's just going to outlearn us and yeah. be able to imitate us so well that you how are you going to have a capture when computer can be a human and we we've been training them in, in the early stages right and again illusion of choice we don't have a choice but to train them because otherwise yeah. we can't log into our accounts exactly so... <laughs> I was like, I didn't even know. It's like, oh my God, every time I put in a capture, I've been contributing to this machine learning and I didn't even know it. I mean, that's literally everything you do online, really. Yeah. <laughs> Is the internet def different in that side of the world? Is what you see different? Um, even before moving here, I, I do follow Canadian news quite a bit. I mean, a lot of stories around um, big tech and misinformation in online spaces are coming from UK, US anyway. But one thing I found quite interesting was um, the C10 bill that's been discussed here where they're trying to control online content. I thought, oh, this sounds like I'm back in Malaysia because what, what this bill is essentially trying to do is to control the type of content you see on any social media platform because there's a rule here where you have to have a certain percentage of airtime dedicated to Canadian artists. So it's very similar to what we have in Malaysia. Um, th th this is why like with BFM Radio, 30% of our programming is in Malay, uh, which is oh, usually yeah, <laughs> midnight to, you know, <laughs> when no one's listening. But it's to fulfill that quota, you need that 30% of Malay content. So they have something similar here, but to extend this for online content as well. So how do you enforce such a law, right? I mean, you would have to change like YouTube's algorithm basically, right? And, and I'm just thinking like, this is, this is a very Malaysian move. It's only about getting more Canadian content on social media. Yeah. Say they managed to change YouTube's algorithm or whatever, and you're seeing 30% Canadian content on your feed, it still doesn't guarantee that you're going to click on it, right? Exactly. So it might just become like YouTube ads. It's there, but you just ignore it. To be fair, that kind of rule, if loosely implemented, is fair because I, I do believe in supporting um, local artists mm. wherever local Same. is. But what do you think about like this whole antitrust stuff with the big tech in the US? I think big tech has to be broken up because mm. this monopoly that's going on is making big tech more powerful than governments. Like with Facebook and Google threatening to pull out of Australia, serving mm. a whole country. And they have that kind of bargaining power against mm. a big country. I think it's pretty alarming. Just, just think of that in an objective sense to deplatform the president of the United States. Without context, you don't need to know that it's Donald Trump. I mean, he is an atrocious guy, but that kind of thing 10 years ago would be unthinkable. But at the same time, 10 years ago, a president of the United States using social media like Trump did was also unthinkable, <laughs> right? True. But that's a lot of power for corporations, yeah. It is. 
it feels like a very American problem because, mm. you know, corporations versus American government. I mean, it's battle of two evils, really, <laughs> right? But unfortunately, it's not an American problem because these monopolies control literally the whole world. It just reminded me. I was watching Mitchell's versus the machine and the founder of the corporation that made the robots is literally a young guy in a hoodie called Mark. So like, yeah, that's truly like uh, the villain of our generation, right? Yeah, yeah. I always struggle with finding the villain. When I did my Ring True miniseries after my press fellowship in Wolfson, I did that miniseries to kind of capture the essence of my whole study on misinformation and science news. And when I was going through the script with Caroline O, who was also the narrator, but she went through my script and she wanted me to, who, who's the villain? Yeah. We are the heroes, who's the villain? And I always struggle with that, like with that kind of storytelling, that kind of, you need a hero, you need, you need a villain. Because I mm. think that the most effective stories sometimes don't have a villain. I keep coming back to the stories of the Thai boys who got trapped in the cave. The mm-hmm. whole world was rooting for them. And there's no real like human villain. I mean, it's, it's nature. So, mm. so a good story doesn't necessarily need to have that super villain. People can still come together. But for I don't sure. know what's the compelling narrative that is without a villain for the subject that I'm working on. It doesn't necessarily need a villain, but villains do help mobilize also, I feel. <laughs> Especially when they're like such an obvious villain, like Bezos or something, you know, that's not hard. <laughs> no. But yeah, I, I, I do agree that it's usually way more complex than just hero villain. It's the most, I suppose, the most used technique in storytelling, isn't it? Yes, for sure. <laughs> Hero's journeys, fil- film school 101. <laughs> I mean, tech journalism and all that. It's very like, if you're in it, then you kind of know about it or you read about it regularly. But if not, then it's not. I don't think the average internet user thinks about these things Mm. all the time, right? Is there like much of the newsletter culture here in Malaysia? Mm, It's growing. Um, I'm seeing some journalism friends doing it. I use Substack as a platform. It's a bit problematic right now. It's some internal issues, but... When it came out, it's supposed to be for journalists to curate the news. Like they created the kind of messaging or angle to to attract journalists and opinion column writers Mm. um, to have uh, a place to host their writing. So something like a competition with Medium, but Medium is, you know, website-based. Substack is a newsletter and goes straight to your inbox and then when Twitter roll out review, it's like so exciting because I want to subscribe to all these newsletters because this is kind of like how misinformation spreads in WhatsApp groups and other social messaging groups. You have to be part of this Telegram group or part of this WhatsApp group to see what uh, false information is being spread. And with newsletters, because it goes to your email you kind of need to be subscribed. And, and because of the subscription tier, if, if it's not free and you have to be a member, then it is like 
a WhatsApp group is closed to only those who are a member of the group, right? I think newsletter is the next place to be. Damn, I didn't even think of that. <laughs> you create a following, comes straight to your inbox, and only you know about it. And it's that, you know, exclusivity that makes it even more thing. I guess the downside, I don't well, I don't know if it's a downside, is that people can't really respond. I mean, they can always reply to your email, of course, mm-hmm. but it's not like they can immediately type a comment and then have a conversation. Yeah. So does that, I don't know, does that make you feel a little protected in a way? I mean, it's interesting to to see how it plays out. Maybe people are also starting to become more disillusioned by messaging apps because you're just inundated by these. Like if you remember so many groups, you get like people commenting on and on and on and on. So maybe email newsletters, you find your sweet spot there. Yeah, no, I've learned like so much from your newsletter <laughs> over the glad. last year. I get excited when I see it in my inbox. Uh, I don't ever get excited about anything in my <laughs> inbox. <you know? laughs> oh, that's really um, nice to hear. Yeah. And once again, that's Filmmaker in Azarazil. If you would like to join me on the show for conversations like this, get in touch at tinacamelia.substack.com. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't, and if you enjoyed this episode, consider sharing it with someone. Till the next one, goodbye for now. Bye.